Hello everyone, and welcome to DataFem, where we engage you with stories of how innovators across the globe are using data to achieve new heights in their respective industries. I'm Danielle, founder of Decayo Data, and I'm your host for DataFem, which has been on a brief break, but we're coming back with full energy and excitement to finish out the rest of season two. So today's guest is a friend of mine. She's very talented. She is a data scientist at Inter-American Development Bank and an accomplished artist as well. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome today's guest, Selena Carter, and invite you to join us as we talk about common patterns between the worlds of art and data science, and furthermore, how a background in art can inform a data science career. So I really enjoyed meeting you, even though it was virtually through Lander Analytics DC conference a few months ago. And I wanted to know how you got involved with that conference to begin with. Well, first of all, Danielle, thank you so much for inviting me to your podcast. It's uh, super fun. We've been, you know, chatting back and forth for a while. And um, I love the, our conference um, with Lander Analytics for this purpose that I can meet other cool people who not only within data, but within um, art and nerdy stuff and life. So thank you so much for the invitation. Um, I got involved with the conference in 2018 because we, um, we contracted a, an external consultant for machine learning, who's uh, uh, Dr. Jonathan Hirsch at Chapman University. And he was, uh, you know, friends with Jared, um, the owner of Lander Analytics, and um, he recommended this R conference at the time. It was DCR in, in Washington, D.C. So, you know, we were invited and uh, myself and a colleague from my work at the Inter-American Development Bank, where I'm a data scientist. Um, and that's when it all started. Once I went to that R conference, it just clicked. I realized that this was the crowd. This was my crowd. Um, the impression I had at the uh, R conference in DC was that data people, especially in the R community, are fun. They're very friendly. They're they're open and they're diverse. Um, I never really had that feeling before in Washington DC, where you see a lot of sort of wonky, gray suit, very passionate people, you know, very intense type A people. But at the art conference, I finally met others who were artistic and had blue hair or interesting long nails uh, with, you know, cool clothes that suggested they were, you know, um, in the art or the theater crowd in high school, or they had a music background. I mean, it was suddenly like, wow, there's creatives here, in addition to the data nerds. 
Um, and my analogy, at, without trying to exaggerate the feeling, was it felt more like a queen concert, more than just another wonk, you know, data policy crowd. So it was exciting. It was creative. It was musical. And that was where I, I was like, this is it. This is my, these are my people. What's it like working as a data science for Inter-American Development Bank? Do you use R a lot? And like, how did you get in that role? A lot of my listeners are really interested in hearing how successful data scientists like you find their roles following their undergrad or master's degrees. I've been there for five years now, and I can honestly say it's been a completely uh, life-changing journey, and I absolutely love it. It really ties in a lot of my different interests and my background. Um, I'll just um, mention that I'm originally from Maine in a small town, and uh, I, you know, did not grow up in a Hispanic family or anything like this, but I was always fascinated by that particular region. And so finally, after majoring in Spanish and international studies in college, I joined the Peace Corps in Ecuador. So I spent two years in a small village in a banana plantation, essentially in Ecuador. And I absolutely loved it. I love the the social interaction with a lot of kids. I had after school programs um, with teenagers and um, mothers and parents. So I really built up sort of a, a different side of myself there. Eventually, I worked in international development. I have a master's degree first from Syracuse University in economics, public policy, and international relations. Long story short, I ended up in D.C. eventually after, you know, many years in different countries, including Mozambique and Turkey and Portugal, Ecuador, as I mentioned. Um, and while I was in D.C. working at the Inter-American Development Bank, I decided I really wanted to um, enhance my data skills. So I started and completed the master's in math and statistics at Georgetown University. And that's really where I had rounded the corner in terms of my technical skills. Um, at the IDB, I started in a role which was um, more of a business consultant where I was working a lot with Excel and kind of, you know, doing a lot of reporting and um, sort of meta analysis, I, I guess you could say regarding the business and the different types of projects um, at the IDB, um, which is, of course, a development, uh, economic development institution. Um, but it was really in the middle of my master's degree where suddenly I had so many people at the IDB really reaching out to me, looking for my help, because word gets out fast if you're a data person, if you're fluent in R, if you have statistical uh, or modeling um, background, then it was really suddenly like in the, I guess, the second year of my master's degree, which I was, you know, doing part time, that um, I had so many offers within the IDB to go deeply into this role as a data scientist. So one of them was to work at the vice presidency for countries, which is one of two main vice presidencies at the IDB. And they needed a data scientist to work on um, issues related to how, how can we improve the efficiency of projects 
on, in execution um, and how, how to improve the quality of, of management of these projects because the IDB, as you may know, has a very large portfolio of development projects within Latin America and the Caribbean. And so there I really thrived um, as a data scientist. I would definitely say it was the master's degree in math and statistics that easily pushed me over the edge of being someone really into data and likes data into someone who was really sought after in the in the area of, of data analysis. When you talked about, you know, your leaning towards Spanish and, you know, Latin America as a focus, you're not from a Hispanic family. Do a lot of people assume you are? Yes, because, well, in fact, my mom is originally from New Mexico. Um, she grew up in Los Alamos, um, you know, where the national lab is and had a, you know, rich cultural background from growing up there. I mean, there's people from all over the world in Los Alamos. In addition, New Mexico has many, you know, native um, uh, Hispanics, people who've been there from before it was settled uh, by the the English um, and the gringos from the East. So um, really it's, it's a unique place and having gone back and forth as a kid to visit family there. And um, I came to appreciate that part of our country's history. And I just fell in love with the, 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 the many colors of that, of that culture. I think probably in our town, which is a very small town, probably about 2000 people in, in Maine, we kind of stood out as being the family with people who are, you know, not from there. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure people at some point assumed I was Hispanic because I'm so into it. I mean, I'm listening to all this Spanish speaking music and um, I, you know, have learned Spanish and but but in fact, it's it's really just an appreciation. Um, and it's a it's a great region of the world. It's learning Spanish has been the most useful language of the three I speak which includes Portuguese and Turkish. Um, and it's just a, a wonderful area of the world to have chosen as a spot to engage my skills and my love for people and um, working with others. So, you know, it was a it was a unique journey for sure. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I brought that up because I'm also mixed. Um, you know, my mom is Indian. It's when you look racially ambiguous, people always make the assumption that, you know, kind of completes the story in their head. It's also just a small world because I used to go sailing in Maine um, growing up and we would park near Bath or Bangor, like all these small towns. I think it's funny people talk about, you know, going to someplace that's for me just home and for them it's like this new exotic place and it makes me it reminds me that one person's ordinary is another person's exotic so for me growing up in Maine in you know this inland small town very cute very quaint but you know you don't notice that so much when you're growing up you just think of it as you know ordinary and frankly, as a teenager, I thought it was quite boring. As a kid, it was great because, you know, we had a farm, we had, you know, little 
ponies and we had sheep and we had chickens. So as a kid, it's fun, you know, but then as a teenager, you're like, this sucks, you know, this is boring. We're like the hillbillies. But later I learned that, especially in the Peace Corps, I was sent to another small town that was essentially like the Ecuadorian equivalent of my hometown in Maine, just sort of this regular place. And it was so interesting to me. And then they thought I was interesting and they thought I was fascinating. I'm like, oh, I'm not. You're interesting. No, we're not. You're interesting. And the same thing happened when I was in Mozambique. I would go to these small villages and, um, you know, to them, it's ordinary to me. I'm just looking at everything like, oh, this is so cool. Oh, how neat this is. I was just delighted. So I think it's really funny how that is. And it goes to show that who you are and where you're from is special, no matter what it is. And I think it's really great to appreciate people from, quote, ordinary places, because sometimes those are the most interesting stories. Yeah, I guess I wanted to address one more question about school before we kind of move on to talking about art. I am wondering just because it's a topic that's always on my mind and we mentioned your um, math and statistics degree. Do you feel like what you learned in school really prepared you for your job at you know IDB or do you feel like you had to learn on the job still? Good question. Um, it's an important question. I think it's both. I really think that there are some areas of data science that are difficult to learn in a university setting, and I wouldn't recommend it. And there are some aspects of data science I think should be learned in a formal university setting, or at least a formal structured class setting. Um, I would say the things that I learned in the university setting that were helpful were the math, and the sort of more dry, if you will, aspects of statistics and, and math, um, you know, or, or, you know, algorithms or numeric methods, um, those would have been hard for me to do on the job simply, simply because they are theoretical. They don't, um, they require a lot of time to work on the nitty gritty and the details of, you know, proving an equation um, you know, approving some result, uh, something that something is optimal when you perform a certain algorithm. Um, and I think those are hard to pick up on the job. But I will also say I took a course on coding and I was so frustrated because I was like, why am I paying, you know, six grand basically for me to basically teach myself how to code? And coding is so important. Coding gets you so far so quickly. It's amazing how much you can do as a data scientist, learning to code, learning to organize and clean your data and make cool graphs and have that creative self, you know, blossom through ggplot or through, you know, Plotly and all these different packages that are available in R and Python. And that was frankly a waste of money in the university to do because it, it just, you can't teach it in a lecture format. You have to just go do it. So um, I would say, you know, for theory and for the math, great. I'm very happy I had my university um, professors there to teach me that in a sort of structured way where I was forced to do the homework and everything. But as far as the uh, more creative aspects and the coding 
um, you know, and even uh, some of the, you know, I, the algorithms that you would learn, I learn them through doing. Um, and I'm, it's important, I think, anywhere to always have an open mind to like, I have to figure something out. I always have to figure something out. It's never like, oh, I learned it all and now I'm just applying it all. I bump, bump into things all the time where I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe I have a master's. I am an idiot and I don't even know what this is. Like, but I feel like everybody probably thinks that about themselves. So I'm like, okay, what do I do? I need to read this and I'll read and I'll ask. And then eventually you're like, oh, okay, that's how it works. Cool. I don't get everything about it, but you know, I'm still learning about this. So, um, you know, it's a mixed bag, but, um, you know, I think for anyone who wants to learn coding and really get themselves up to speed there, absolutely, that's something I think is done best on your own, um, maybe through an online course to help structure it a little bit. But I wouldn't say it's worth the like, you know, six grand or whatever you would pay in a private or a public university to figure that out. Hey guys, so we're taking a break from our programming to talk about this episode's sponsor, Sarah Nell Rodriguez, who you will remember from season one of Data Femme, where we talked a lot about data literacy. And what's really exciting is that Sarah has now started an organization called Be Data Lit that is all about making the public at large data literate so that we're not just going through corporations and our jobs to get educated on this subject. Branching outside corporate data literacy will ensure that individuals who are jobless and from underrepresented groups also have the access to tools they need to become data literate. But I did have a brief conversation with Sarah herself so that she can tell you firsthand how you can support the Be Data Lit movement and hear more details about what it's all about. It's the act of empowering people to be data literate and uh, taking a different perspective this time, though. Rather than going to the end user, the person who... Uh, is impacted by the skills gap today, I want to go to the activist. I want to go to the change agent and empower them to reach people in their community to bring about change to close the skills gap. Yeah, I love all the work you do with data literacy. How can our listeners get involved and support you? The way I see your listeners getting involved is really the awareness factor. I, I think there's a lot of uh, muddied waters as far as data literacy goes and what it actually is. And it, it's at risk for becoming a buzzword and diminishing the purpose of it. Because no matter what term we use for it, it's about the skills gap that exists in the workforce today. And not just the workforce, but people everywhere. It's about ability to thrive with data skills today so we can exist, <laughs> so we can have jobs, so we can read our financial records. It's things like that. So I think it's generating awareness, one, but also motivating people to talk about it and to think about it beyond a corporation. 
this is not just a corporate problem. This is a personal problem. This is your parents' problem. This is kids in school problem. So uh, really, that's my purpose more than anything that I hope your listeners can help with. Yeah, well, I'm on the site right now. It's bedatalit.com, and it looks amazing. So I encourage everybody listening to this to go right there and just explore the site, especially the understanding data literacy part. You're totally right about that being a buzzword and becoming a buzzword. And I guess we just have to flesh out more conversations around it to make sure that that doesn't happen. 100%. I want people to be excited and inspired and see the potential for this. I want people to look at their own communities and see the potential and go out and talk to people. The more people we talk to about this, no matter what industry they're in, no matter what job they have, the more people who know what this is, the more we can bring about change. And hopefully what we do is create a huge network of advocates who talk about this and who can hopefully start to close this skills gap that nobody has been able to do so far. To be frank, like, I feel like statistics, learning the skills and statistics, one thing to understand and to accept is that you're going to spend a lot of time learning something and caring about theory. And there can be another guy next to you who just, you know, writes the code in R, for example, it would be linear, you know, linear model, LM, open parentheses, you know, why, you know, regressed on the rest of the things and then just clicks enter and doesn't even care about what's inside. And you're going to find people like that. And they'll just, the theory is just like, eh, they read it over and they're fine with it. For me, I, I do care. Sometimes the caring isn't appreciated and sometimes the caring doesn't come out in my day-to-day job. But I think it is important to know that stuff as best you can and realize it's an ongoing journey. Even though I've, you know, taken linear regression, you know, and all these other theoretical courses, I still have open questions where I'm like, you're never done your journey of theory. You know, it's not something you close the book on after you're done school. I really have been waiting for a few months now to talk to you about your artistic background and the connection um, between that and data science. Because when you showed me some of your art, both the visual art and the lovely ceramic art um, that you made for me and others. I just got this feeling that you really thought that art was going to be your be all end all your career. I'm just hoping you can tell me and the listeners about your artistic background growing up. Well, thank you so much. And what a cool segue into how art and data are so related and that this field of data science is in fact wonderful in its diversity of people with their backgrounds in many different fields. And that I think I mentioned in my um, 2019 DCR talk um, that it is your duty to combine these fields. If you have this other um, vocation, whether it be art or music or, um, you know, creation, if, if you're a carpenter, whatever outlet you have for creating, you know, um, it is your duty to incorporate that into the other aspects of, of, of your career. It's, it's going to enhance what you do in some way or form. And it doesn't mean you have to literally do two things at once in a very, you know, sort of cut, you know, paste two pieces together, like, oh, I'm a carpenter and I'm a 
data person, so I'm going to do data about carpentry or something. Like, no, it comes out in an indirect way. So for me, I I was I grew like I said I grew up in Maine. I was really around other kids who were artists um, or whose parents were artists and. Um, my two best friends, their mother is a professional quilter and my mom was a photographer. And so I guess we were encouraged early on to, to just make stuff. And that's what we did. Whenever we got together, we just went crazy and made stuff. And eventually the elementary school I went to, um, which was a public school, they, um, put us in this program called gifted and talented art. And so me and my, my two friends, we, we were always the art kids. From the very beginning, we were sort of lucky to have been labeled the art kids. And um, everything that was a school project involving drawing or art or whatever, it was like, oh, go, go get Selena and Teresa and Jesse. They're the ones who do that. Okay, we're here. We signed up. You know, we're like the professional little drawers for everybody. Eventually, we were in high school and, and I really loved art still. It was my outlet as a teenager coming of age to express my angst over whatever issues growing up were bothering me with, whether it was not feeling like I fit in, you know, at school, or if it was, um, you know, just general, you know, feeling like you're becoming a teenager and you're awkward. Well, being an artist by myself, listening to my music, my, you know, Spanish music, and that was for me how I garnered strength. And I became very good at drawing. And I, I also took courses at the Maine College of Art, um, which is in Portland. So my mom would drive me there on the weekends and I would do these extra art courses. So I was really into it. It was really, truly what I considered to be my passion before anything else. And then, you know, I had planned to go to art school. I was accepted to Maine College of Art and won some awards for my portfolio and I loved learning Spanish. I was also very good at math. I was, you know, one of the top students in math. I got the calculus award in high school and all these things. And, um, but I think it was what clicked for me was when I started learning Spanish, I realized I can open this whole world to me. And so it sort of transitioned from there into more of an international pursuit. And the art part you know, took a back burner for a while as I went through college and everything. Eventually, on the other end, I got back into art when I was finally graduated and I realized, hey, this is my talent. I wanted to keep doing this. And I did. And many of my drawings and my paintings um, are on my Instagram account, which is selena.carter.art. And um so from there, I, I continued to do art, you know, in classes and in, um, you know, informal settings. Um, I keep a sketchbook. Uh, and it really, it really does kind of round out all of my skills together. Um, and I think that people usually assume that art and math are opposite things. I completely disagree. I think they're very in tune with each other as an artist especially for drawing, as you know, there's a lot of measuring, there's a lot of logic, um, there's a lot of observation and paying attention to angles and how different objects relate to each other. It's, it's, it's some, has a certain amount of engineering to it. So for me, that those skills directly come from a math part of the brain. And then there's this creative side that is 
sort of what we think of as the art side, but really it's, it's a dance between that colorful, creative, free part of yourself with the more technical and the more literal side of, of drawing and um, creating. So for me, those things are a microcosm itself of data uh, science, because you're, you're doing those same things in a different way when you work with data. Growing up, I was a, com I was a composer. I didn't really think about technique that much in the beginning of my compositions. I just wrote what I felt and what I knew, you know? I had this boyfriend who was incredibly intelligent, you know, very mathematical as well, but like he didn't write what he felt. He wrote like through algorithms. He could pick out really cool patterns in my work that I wasn't thinking about. And I felt something about his work. You know what I mean? So like, just because you don't acknowledge, you know, the artistic part of science or the scientific part of art doesn't mean that they don't exist. And I feel like if you don't acknowledge one of them, you may get by, you know, you may win things, you may feel good, you may have a career, but you aren't gonna be the best artist or data science out person out there unless you really understand how one fits into the other. And I mean, that's true with data science too, at least in my experience. Like, you know, some people really don't care about the presentation because they've never had to. It's a science field. Why do we have to look pretty? You know, <laughs> like, why do we have to organize things artistically? Um, and then some people, there are some categories of people who come into data science and pretty much don't learn to code, don't understand the science, don't understand calculus, don't understand statistics, but somehow, you know, get pretty good at it um, from an artistic perspective. But then, you know, I feel like both of these types of people, though at opposite ends of the spectrum of our growing industry, are going to reach a roadblock at some point where they're going to have to come to terms with the flip side. Absolutely. And I want to mention where you said, going back a little bit, the presentation matters. I think that you're absolutely right. And I'm going to give you an example of how I think being an artist helped in this regard. And to a certain degree, maybe my own femininity helped in this regard. Um, so in 2018, I, I wrote a proposal um, for a machine learning project at the Inter-American Development Bank, my work. So they were doing a call for proposals on solving a problem using machine learning in, in an effort to promote those types of tools at the, at the organization. And I submitted an idea, a proposal that I think was fundamentally simple, a simple question um, using data, but I elaborated in detail you know, what the actual steps would be and what are the outputs and what are the types of, you know, problems we could encounter. So the actual content of the proposal was very thorough and detailed, which I think comes back to sort of a, a knowledge of the field and what are the types of problems in this modeling process that you can encounter. But I think what, what really tipped the scale in our favor because this proposal won the competition 
was the presentation of my document. I made, I was all in the PowerPoint, making my own custom, you know, uh, you know, graphics. And I really made an effort to choose colors carefully. I wanted it to be bright and interesting. I wanted to use spring colors, Easter egg colors, you know, things that make you feel sunny and, and happy to read this. Um, and people would say, oh, why are you spending so much time picking the right color orange? I'm like, because it matters. We don't want a dark, you know, harsh orange. We want a happy flower orange. And so the presentation was brilliant. I mean, it's just this gorgeous document. And I think that that is the type of detail that an artist brings to the table um, that I think matters. And I think it's the, the, the analogy would be if you have an office space and there's someone who cares about putting flowers and plants, you know, um, for me, I'm like that. I like having my office space have lots of plants, lots of color, it, you know, and for me, that, that environment really helps stimulate different parts of who I am. Um, so, you know, presentation matters. Um, art and passion matter. And science and technical skills matter. Um, all of these flow together nicely. It's a beautiful marriage between different parts of your brain. And I agree with you that people who do one but not the other, they're, they're, they're missing some piece of the puzzle that if they develop it a little bit more, they're only going to enhance um, their own um, you know, outputs and their own creative capacity. It really is cool to have learning environments, whether that's at school or at work, where somebody who comes from a more artistic perspective, um, and that could just be somebody who sees and processes data visually and relates more to that than, you know, looking at it statistically, you know? Um, Surprisingly, even though I am very much an artist, I do think that sometimes I lean towards, you know, the conceptual statistical way of viewing things. Um, and I've had to really examine, you know, what makes data science a science and what makes it an art and why do we need both? I think presentation is definitely part of it. Um, but are there any other ways that you notice, you know, even like your personal art background or just art in general informing the basics that are needed in data science? Well, that's a good question. And I think that really there are sort of two ways to combine the art side and the data science side or the more technical statistical side. Um, first is directly. I'm, there's, you know, of course, so many different um, packages in R and in Python where you can build beautiful graphs and really go crazy and get creative and put a cool background image and adjust, you know, use, use functions that will put a filter on an image and, you know, um, you can, you can just go crazy with the, the visual tools themselves in terms of creating nice visualizations, 
Um, if you're really gung-ho, you can go with D3, which I have not learned, but I have seen awesome, awesome interactive graphs using JavaScript. Um, so you can make an entire lifetime out of that alone, for sure. Um, but then there's a sort of an indirect route of combining art skills with data science. And I think, like you, that's, that's actually me. I, I use art as a enhancement to my creative uh, outlet for new algorithms or for learning about how something works. It's a way to stimulate, I think, a part of my brain that becomes energized when I think about, oh, I want to know how does this decision tree actually, you know, you know, become an optimal you know, um, algorithm when you include many, many trees or how does extreme gradient boosting actually work? And so I think that having an artistic background helps um, you ask questions. It helps you find a creative niche where you're always exploring and you're always kind of letting the, the, the subject matter lead you into areas of curiosity, kind of like um, exploring a cavern where you're always looking into another section of a cave and you're, you're, you're just an explorer, really. Um, and I think art has that ability to allow you to explore and, you know, use your technical skills in a way that produces something you didn't expect to start with. That's the route I take is a little more of an indirect route, you know, and I know people who do direct things, you know, with art in an awesome way. They're making these awesome visualizations and they're creating, you know, neural nets that produce uh, realistic portraits of people from photographs and things like this. And it's fascinating. Um, that to me is, is, is fascinating in itself, but it doesn't have to be the only way you combine data and art. I agree. And I think also if you're not from an artistic background, it's still really cool to start with D3, which I love, by the way, um, or Plotly, like any any of those really beautiful um, visual aids that really give you that instant gratification that you need when you're learning to code. Even SQL, I feel like, has that kind of visual component with the tables where you actually see the data moving around based on what you're doing. And I think that instant gratification is important for everyone, whether you're a visual learner or not. Everybody has this innate love for art and everybody has this innate curiosity about science. I think that's universal. Some people just tap into it more. And, you know, that leads to having a richer career and a richer life, in my opinion. I completely agree. And I'll also mention, I think I really learned R when I learned ggplot. Um, it wasn't simply the ggplot code itself, but it was learning how to structure data so that ggplot works the way it does. That taught me how to clean data and um, kind of work with a data frame and then produce a, a graph as well as become comfortable with coding and, and how fun it was to adjust the, the graph, you know, and use Google and everything to answer my questions and how easy it was to find the answers. Um, you know, I, so I kind of learned R 
mostly through making cool visualizations, cool graphics. So it's a great segue to data science and learning to code simply by making graphs and cool stuff that you find, you know, pretty. Yeah. Yeah. Presentation does make a difference. And, you know, whether that's an art or a science of how to really get people's attention, you know, it's good to combine forces on both. We are getting to the end of our time and we have covered a lot of things. So I want to get to what I think is the question I'm most curious about because all of my artist friends are struggling with this um, and especially in a pandemic. How do you keep having art in your life while managing your career and charging forward with data science? And, you know, what are some tactics you use to make sure that you're still pursuing this? I know you mentioned your Instagram, which is awesome, and everybody should check it out. I thrive on routine. Um, you know, I, I like to have a rhythm and certain days of the week where I do something always or a certain time I go work out and a certain time I, you know, eat lunch. And then, you know, some people might think that's boring, but, you know, it is what it is. I like it. It works for me. And I think artistically, I've been the most productive when I do have a rhythm and a community and some structure. Um, so what I do right now is I have an online group and we get together and we draw together, like literally online. It's just once a week and it's three hours. We, someone shares a screen of either a picture or an object and we all um, start drawing it. And we um, have a, a leader, a teacher who sort of shows us how she puts it together and, you know, makes some maybe like starting lines or some guidelines for us to kind of keep ourselves on track of how to how to pursue this particular drawing. But um, it's really helpful to have that structure and a community. So luckily during the pandemic, there's lots of these types of resources. You know, you can join these these clubs, you know, everything's virtual. You can join them in any part of the country or the world. Um, and, you know, it's a great way to unwind, but focus, you kind of get that artist's focus where you're just really involved. Your brain is completely immersed in this particular drawing. Um, and I think that's really important to, to do, and it doesn't have to be any big composition, any big masterpiece. You know, we've been drawing silly things like scissors, you know, or, you know, I think we drew, you know, a flower and a butterfly, just really simple objects. But by doing that, you kind of open up your brain's ability to become creative, even after the class is done. I, after the class is done, I'm always kind of contemplating that picture. And oh, isn't it how, interest, how interesting it is that as an artist, you can find elegance and even in simple objects like scissors, you know, that there's this appreciation for the mundane um, and you start to notice throughout the week, oh, isn't that beautiful? Oh, isn't that crinkled little leaf kind of interesting? I mean, it enhances all of my life to be able to draw and appreciate these silly details. Um, and I think that lends into my work. It makes me curious about things that other people might find boring that I suddenly get lost in. 
I think that's a very useful state of mind for any career, but especially for data when sometimes, you know, you're presented with a problem and instead of being freaked out by it, you're more like, oh, isn't that weird? Isn't that interesting? Huh? I think there's so many resources and I think it's really important to create a community for it. Have buddies, have friends, you know, do it in a group. And online, frankly, surprised me. It's it's not bad at all. It's been great. I just sit here with my little, you know, mug or whatever I've got and, you know, just sort of draw and listen quietly to other people chat about random things. And it's very relaxing and um, it's been great. Wow. Well, thank you, Selena. I really appreciate you being on here to talk about the intersection between art and data science, because I think a lot of us come from artistic backgrounds. I see all the time on Twitter that there's somebody who is knitting or a musician or a creative writer or a poet who also happens to be high up at a data science or tech firm. And I think that's amazing. And I think we should recognize how these other background traits and skills might inform our career in shaping a very new industry. For all of you listening, I know you love this episode as much as I do. So feel free to interact on Twitter at Data. I am always around to answer any questions or to talk about any episodes, not just the recent one. Also, since it's been a while, I'd like to remind you all that you can support the podcast at patreon.com slash Very easy. I'm working out what the perks are going to be coming into the upcoming season three on epidemiology and the COVID vaccine data. But I would love to hear your feedback and receive your support. And it's been great. I will see you all next week. Mm -hmm.